The Lifestylist, episode 56, featuring Anya Fernald. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. The sound that's currently vibrating your eardrums is the voice of Luke Story, host of The Lifestylist. That's me, and I'm here to bring you an episode today all about the current state of farm-to-table food. That's right. It's a great episode. I just spent the day with our guest, Anya Fernald, at her spot, Belcampo Meat Company. Just ate tons of delicious food and had a chance to really sit down with her and take an in-depth, I think what's going to be a two-part episode, really, into her whole business and her whole viewpoint on farming and raising animals for food. And she is a really bright woman, amazing entrepreneur and CEO, founder, lots of respect, lots of fun in this conversation, and so much to be learned for you. So some of the things that we cover are some great recipes for incorporating organ meats into your diet in a way that is actually Uh, that tastes good and is easy to do and something I'm always trying to work on, creating a new, healthier, and more profitable farming model. She's got some great innovations in terms of just starting a business based on farming that's good for the farmers, good for the animals, good for the consumers, and good for the owners. Very cool stuff. Then we crack the code on why pastured animals actually taste so much better and why grass-fed labeled meat is not enough. It's got to be grass-finished. So we're going to teach you how to avoid the food labeling scams around grass-fed meat and you're going to be surprised (laughs) you've probably been scammed a lot already then really how to decode all of the food labels on beef eggs and bacon how to avoid buying inferior products you know when you're in whole foods and you're like oh god which eggs should i buy i mean literally there's like 30 types of so-called pastured eggs and all of those terms are used loosely and they're all kind of you know uh, used for marketing and things like that so you have to kind of know your way around to learn how to get the best stuff and anya does not disappoint in teaching us what to do Then we go into what's worse for the environment, monocrops of vegetables or actually just properly rotating herds of livestock? What's the natural way that the land is meant to be tended to? And the dirty little secrets of chicken farms and factory farming. And finally, how farmers and the environment get hosed by government subsidies. There's kind of a whole agricultural system that's been set up in this country, and it does not serve the farmer, the environment, or the consumer. And so Anya's specialty is really creating a brand new business and farming paradigm that serves all three equally. And I just love this lady. She's really smart. And as I said, just a great entrepreneur. And finally, her kids started, her kids were here and they started crying. We had to end the interview, but we went, I don't know, I think an hour and 40 minutes or something. I could have gone three hours. I mean, she's just an endless treasure trove of information and just a beautiful and fascinating lady. So it was a lot of fun for me. And you know what that means? That means it's going to be a lot of fun for you. So tune in, learn all you can. And if uh, you can get over to Belcampo, if you're in LA, I think maybe by the time this comes out, they might even have a website up and running. Uh, as she stated in the interview, but it's a very cool company. I love supporting people like this that are conscious and doing things right. So enjoy the show. Do you ever find yourself sitting there listening to this podcast going, oh my God, I'm so inspired. I wish there was some way that I could contribute and help Luke to keep this thing going every week. 
Have you ever thought that? Well, I have. And so I made a page on my website called the support page. If you go to this URL, lukestory.com forward slash support, you'll find a page there with an awesome little video of me explaining how the show works and giving you three opportunities, not one, but three opportunities to help make a small donation to the show. It's super, super quick and easy. It only takes about a minute to make a contribution, but those minutes can add up to hours and hours of future content on this podcast. So again, go to lukestory.com forward slash support and anything you can do to help would be so greatly appreciated. This episode is brought to you by my friends over at Organifi. I discovered this product a few months ago and it has changed the game for me. Everybody knows that green juice is good for you, right? Here's the deal, though. Couple disadvantages to your average cold-pressed green juice. A, a lot of times it comes in plastic, not good. B, it's usually loaded with sugar up to 25 grams, which is basically like drinking a green Coca-Cola. Not happening. Next is they go bad. You can't leave it sitting out, and they're really bad for travel. So I love my green juice. That's cool. Cold-pressed. I get the sugar-free ones. I'm into it. But Organifi makes a green powdered superfood that comes in these little packets that are portable and you can take with you. So I keep them in my car and in my bag and on demand anytime I have a bottle of water, I can pour one of these in there and have an instant green juice. Alkalizing, energizing, gives you mental clarity. It's fantastic. It's loaded with 11 superfoods. A lot of the green powders not only taste gross and are overpriced, but they'll have like 200 ingredients. And I'm always thinking, how much of each ingredient is actually in there, okay? These 11 superfoods are the important ones that you need, like turmeric, chlorella, wheatgrass, spirulina, mint, moringa, ashwagandha, lemon, beets, matcha green tea, and coconut water. And it's sweetened with stevia, so it's got a zero glycemic index. It's fantastic stuff. So if you want to check this drink out, work on your health in a way that actually tastes good and is super convenient, here's what you do. Go to Organifi.com, that's with an I, Organifi, Enter the code LIFESTYLIST and save 20% off your order. You guys know I always give you a hookup if I'm going to tell you about something cool that I discovered. So again, go to Organifi.com, enter the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout and save 20%. It's really good stuff. A massive part of my health strategy is the ingestion on a regular basis of medicinal herbs and medicinal mushrooms. And my primary source for those is a company called Four Sigmatic. If you remember way back in the day in episode eight, I had a guest by the name of Taro Isakapula from this company. And we talked all about the power of these amazing herbs and mushrooms. Well, Four Sigmatic do a great job of making them not only potent, but also convenient and delicious. So they make these little packets of herbs that you add to hot water, cold water, or bulletproof coffee, whatever your recipe is. I make them with all kinds of different stuff all the time. It makes a really easy way to get this stuff into your body. And these are herbs that have a real effect on you. It's very powerful stuff. So go to foursigmatic.com, but wait, I'm gonna hook it up. When you get to foursigmatic.com, Enter the code the lifestylist at checkout to save 15% off your order. So you can get things like reishi mushrooms, chaga mushrooms, cordyceps, lion's mane, ashwagandha, all the good stuff that really works. So go to foursigmatic.com, enter the code the lifestylist, and save 15% off your order. Anya Fernald is the co-founder and CEO of Belcampo Incorporated, a group of innovative agricultural ventures in California and Belize, which strives to make good food both the old-fashioned way and on a larger scale than ever before. 
Belcampo employs over 100 people in total with plans to grow awareness, availability, and production of sustainably farmed food through its operations of organic farms, butcher shops and restaurants, as well as unique luxury agritourism destinations. Anya has been recognized as one of the 40 under 40 by Food & Wine, named a Nifty 50 by the New York Times, appeared in a lengthy profile in the New Yorker's Food Issue in 2014, and served as a regular judge on Iron Chef America on the Food Network for the 2009, 2010, and 2011 seasons. Anya's cookbook, Home Cooked, was released in spring 2016 with 10 Speed Press. Anya is an avid consumer and producer of almost everything fermented and spends her spare time with her young children, daughter Viola and son Theo. Welcome to the Lifestylist Podcast, Anya. Thank you for having me, Luke. Absolutely. Super fun day. So you guys, we just got back from uh, Belcampo's downtown headquarters, which I'd actually never been to, amazingly, because I'm always at the Hollywood one on West 3rd Street. And we just had a fantastic lunch. She just like stuffed my, my face with the most amazing grass-fed burger and some sausage and some bone broth made with, uh, where's the water from in the bone broth? The Mount Shasta Aquifer. Okay, so really clean water. You guys know if you listen to the show, I'm very weird about that stuff. So really clean meal, super stuffed, had a coffee, came back over here to the studio, and here we sit. So I'm really excited to sit down finally with a microphone. So I feel like we've already had, we talked probably for an hour there, we've already had like a good episode worth of material. So now thankfully we have a mic and here we are. So let's start out with a brief um, description of how you got into the restaurant business because you're becoming quite a beast in this field and I want to know how you got there. I started in the restaurant business with Belcampo. I've always been in food. I think I was just very early into the artisan food space. And coming at it from a perspective of really being interested in great tasting food and figuring out where it comes from, and then realizing that great tasting food is usually aligned with very healthy food. I don't mean health food. I mean that truly deep nutrition and wonderful taste and richness comes from very healthy food and very healthy environments. And I think I've just always been in pursuit of great taste. And at the same time, I like to make money and I like to make businesses work and I don't want to do something sort of marginal and interesting to the very few, you know. So I was attracted to meat because of that, in part. I mean, partly because I love to eat meat and make charcuterie and cook meat and all that. But also because it it's where you spend a lot of money on food. Uh, it's a nut that not really anybody's cracked on a bigger scale, you know, of really how do you scale up super high-quality product. And it became really clear to me running numbers that, to make the most money off of the meat, to, to be able to afford to farm it the right way, to farm it the best way, you got to control the whole supply chain. And you have to control the point of sale to the customer. You have to own your relationship with the customer. Um, and that, by the by, is also a great way to make sure that you've got safety and security and traceability. So restaurants were a means to an end um, in terms of being able to deliver really high-quality meat to a customer and command a price for it that allows our farm to farm in the very best way possible. Wow, that's cool. That was a very concise answer. You've got that sewn, and sewn up pretty well. What, what I'm curious about is from talking to you, because we were kind of chatting from business owner to business owner, and you seem to be pretty like on point with your entrepreneurship. Where did you learn about business and like how to put this together and get funding and put a team together? Did you go to business school or what? Like, how did that happen? 
This is going to sound really uh, kind of jackassy, but I have, I've always been interested in business. I love business. I started my own cookie business when I was like 12 and, you know, I've always been entrepreneurial and I thought about getting an MBA, but I realized at a certain point I, I want to hire the MBAs. You know, I want to have people like that doing my analysis. I'm not a good numbers person on a very granular basis. And I realized that wasn't a good fit for my brain. I think I'm good at entrepreneurship in terms of inspiring people, making things happen, having good ideas and pushing forward and being very persistent and tenacious, I'm less good on details. So, you know, I realized that that kind of like true business training is for somebody who's going to work in a bigger system and needs to be extremely detail oriented and build complicated spreadsheets. And that's not, um, I'm good at design the process flow to deliver that, but not to be the person in those weeds. I also, you know, I had the benefit of, I was passionate about this stuff. I graduated from college in 1998 and I went to work on raw milk dairies in southern europe and northern africa on a bicycle i mean i was pretty like out there passionate about this i already taken a year off dropped out of school to be a baker and learn how to make traditional american breads and from there i started making my own cheese and then i went to study cheese making so i was kind of like i'd say and then i went from that really frou-frou hippie-ish fun out there beginning to Within a year and a half, I was doing economic development for a development project for the EU in Sicily. So I kind of took that directly in a business space. But I think I was just very lucky to be very early into this very high quality food space. And so at the time when money started to be interested in this space, I was somebody that had a lot of years under my belt and had a decent track record at delivering. Right. Really good timing. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, I think now it still is early. You know, I mean, I remember just, I started going to New York a lot for work maybe eight years ago. And I mean, you couldn't like find a grass fed burger, not happening. Finding, a, there was one juice spot that you could get green juice, you know, the juice press, which now there's like 10 of them. He's expanded and done very well. But I mean, I couldn't find health food. If you wanted healthy food in New York City, you had to eat vegan food. And then it was like usually full of wheat and soy. And that was like the version of health food. And I was pretty kind of paleo, I guess you could say at the time. So I was dying. I'm like, seriously, no one's caught on to this now. And now it's like bubbling under a little bit. You have your little well-curated farm-to-table spots. But to me, it's still relatively underground just from someone who doesn't know. I'm not a big foodie. I'm just someone who likes to eat healthy. I only notice how good it tastes when I go to someplace that has a great chef. And then I go, oh, okay, I get it now. You know, mm-hmm. but when I eat at home, like I was telling you earlier, I mean, literally like my meal is like, I get some ground beef from Belcampo and I buy it fresh or freeze it then thawed out and put a little tablespoon of ghee in there and some spices and put it in a frying pan. And then I put like a couple, you know, big dollops of uh, some fermented vegetables. And like, that's a big meal to me. And it, frankly, I mean, the meat's good, of course, I'm not going to say your meat isn't tasty, but the way I do it is pretty damn boring. So I love now that in LA and New York City and places like that, and I'm sure like in Portland and other places like that, you can find a lot of really great clean You have to help food. me with the visual here though. Do you crumble the beef up? <laughs> yeah, I crumble okay. it up. I make like taco meat basically and just eat that and it's super fatty and greasy uh-huh. and then I put a bunch of vegetables with it. Oh, okay, that makes sense. It's, and all the fermented vegetables yeah. the, with the acidity. Yeah. yeah, okay. It's ridiculous, but... I do you just, ever do it with lamb? No, I don't. That would be a great dish to do with lamb, and like you could kind of up your game with the spices. So if, the, if you like the ghee, the yeah. ghee with the lamb would go really well. You could add your cumin and ground coriander to that, make a little med version. 
Okay, of cool. It. Thank just, you. Thank just, you for the just tip. brainstorming. <laughs> we could do a whole episode on like teaching me how to cook. Actually, I want to call it Luke's Meat Scramble because your book is fantastic. <laughs> like just visually and the recipes. I'm like, oh man. And I've you know I've dated women in my life, thankfully, that love to cook and were great at it. And I go, oh god. But then once they're gone, the food's gone, and I'm back. <laughs> I'm back to my do you my ever, frying um, pan and a you know <laughs> a chunk of ground beef on it. Yeah. I was imagining it as a big square burger. That's what I was like. No. Wait a second, I mean, you talk about that for a yeah, bit more. Yeah, like, you know, I chop it up. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, do you ever do chicken hearts? No. Yeah, no, you, know, you don't like chicken. Well, organ meats is something that I want to incorporate mm-hmm. more. And at various times I have that. We used to have a butcher called Lindy and Grundy up yeah. on Fairfax. Mm-hmm. And they had really good, they were super picky about the farms they worked with and stuff. I think they had, you know, quite a bit of integrity in terms of the quality of merchandise. But I used to get... Um, grass-fed beef livers there and I Mm -hmm. can't stand the taste of it so I used to take it and like dice it up into little cubes Mm -hmm. like about as big as your last thumb digit and then I'd put them on a um, a cookie sheet with some Mm -hmm. like some MCT oil okay and then then I'd freeze them and then I would just swallow them whole like throughout the day like giant vitamins like horse pills I just basically eat them like vitamins and that was like as far as I could get into the I've heard about that as a trick for kids for Weston A. Price to give them liver and frozen chunks. Really? Yeah. It's apparently if you get kids onto it early enough, they love it. I totally thought I invented that. And then I found out you can get desiccated liver capsules, but it never seems like there's enough in there. I'm like, really? Like you'd have to take 40 of them to get a nice chunk of liver. Well, in terms of your frying pan repertoire, I would definitely recommend getting some chicken hearts at our store here locally. If we don't have them in there, you can ask and they'll have them within a couple days. Okay. But just drain those out and take your ghee, get it almost to the smoke point and toss your chicken hearts in there and do them just to medium rare and sprinkle your salt and your spices, et cetera, on them. That's a really great sort of one plate meal. It'd go well with your fermented vegetables, but that's a delicious way to get organ meats. I don't think that heart has all the benefits of liver, of course, but right. it definitely, it's a stir fryable, quick and easy thing. And as I, I think the fastest, like most kind of like easy luxury little food that oh, you can cool. have. The other thing too, I would say, do that same stir fry, but get our duck liver or... Chicken liver. You can also use pork or lamb liver chunk, but they're always going to have that slight graininess. Um, but if you can, you can just stir fry just chunks of that. You don't have to make pate. I actually think it's more delicious just to stir fry that. Um, you know, just take those livers and just lobe them. Just take your chicken shears and cut them in half. Kind of clear off all the little scrapey bits. And just stir fry them and toss them with salt, and you're so good to go. Oh, that's awesome. Those are the easiest thing. You don't have to freeze it. Because the, the flavor on that, if you like, I mean, I just saw you pound a half and half coffee. So if you like rich yeah. animal fat stuff, that you can totally handle a big I plate do. of those like stir-fried livers. Oh, I, yeah. Sometimes for a snack, I just walk by the cabinet and take like a tablespoon of ghee, and I just eat it off a spoon, and uh-huh. that's like my lunchtime snack. So well, I'm totally <laughs> the thing is that the, the key with the liver to do it that way is just to make sure it's still bloody on the inside. Okay. I mean, it really has to be very, very medium rare. And the same with the hearts. The, all the awful taste just terrible when you overcook it. Right, That's when it right. gets gritty and heavy and leaden and also pretty difficult to digest. You know, you kind of feel like it hits you. Yeah. Um, but if you just keep it nice and pink and moist on the inside, which is where you have to have really clean stuff. I mean, obviously, the reason that we are not often cooking our awful medium rare is that awful goes bad very quickly. It's got lots of fat and it's it's soft tissue and it's no muscle. So your muscles, you know, hold your blood in and they provide this nice infrastructure, right? Awful is just fat and very, 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 very soft cell tissue um, because those organs just hold parts of your soft tissue. They don't actually support anything. They're no infrastructure, right? right? They don't hold up any bones or any joints. So there's really nothing that keeps them from collapsing. And so they go bad faster than any other part of the animal. So we are always very cautious about awful because 
because it's the thing that'll go off quickest. So That's if you can get it from us, you should try doing those quick chicken liver dishes, but keep them nice and medium rare. A lot of times, I think we're one of the few people that does this where we actually often have hearts and liver that's never been frozen too, which I think does help with that kind of creaminess of the product. It Then never freezing it does kind of makes slightly sweeter, slightly milder flavor too. So you'd enjoy that. I also think that just in general, as fresh as you can get food, the better. You know, I have a friend and fellow podcaster named Daniel Vitalis, and he's really into this concept called rewilding. And so he's constantly working toward incorporating more wild food into his diet. So he hunts and fish and forages and lives out in Maine. So that's a lot easier to do than here in Hollywood. <laughs> but mm-hmm. he's like, I think up to around 80% wild foods, like self-procured Amazing. wild foods. And so he'll go catch a salmon that's, you know, swam up from the ocean, catch it, and that's dinner that night. And mm-hmm. he kind of lives like that all the time, which is fascinating. But um, he's reported that his health is just dramatically improving more and more all the time from years and years of going on to not only wild foods, but just really fresh foods where mm-hmm. like they're never even frozen. Like you exactly. go out into nature, get them and you eat them right on the spot almost, you know? Absolutely. It's crazy. So, but he eats squirrels and all kinds of weird stuff. It's like my dad hunts coyotes uh-huh. still. He's like in his seventies and that's the one thing he still hunts because he likes deer and the coyotes ruin the deer population in Colorado. Oh, yeah. Totally other conversation, but um, Daniel actually eats coyotes too. I mean, he's like the real deal. He's like a true hunter. He's like, if you're going to kill it, man, you better be able to eat it. So, yeah. But I like, I do, I love the idea of just really getting something that's fresh. That's why Mm -hmm. I love oysters. You know, it's like that, it doesn't get much more fresh than that. Yeah, people don't realize that most of the eggs that you buy in the supermarket can be upwards of two months old. You know, and it's sort of these things that you're eating. I mean, it, it it's interesting that if you really were to test the the age on most of the stuff that you're buying, you know, between the various processes and buying in frozen stuff and then repurposing it, and you know, most of the what we call value added products, things that are cured, are they're all made from frozen inputs. You know, so if you're buying right. any conventional bacon, it's always made from a frozen pork belly. Ah, uh, really? Absolutely. Okay, see, we're going to get into a lot so of... So <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, I think that people ask me why our stuff tastes so different. And it's like, uh, like, where do I begin? You know, like a lot of these yeah. little things, none of them's the black and white difference, but they're all incremental steps that add up to a pretty significant end difference, you know, in the final product. So let, let, let's go ahead and jump into some of those specifics on animal products and where they come from in the process. I'm one of those guys, I love the shows like how it's made and like I'm fascinated by you know how they make an infrared sauna <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. where how do they make the light bulbs like I'm just really into where stuff comes from especially when it has to do with things I'm putting in my body so you mentioned um, eggs for example and the eggs you guys sell you guys I'm gonna be like plugging her and it's gonna sound like I'm kissing her ass but I literally eat there probably five days a week and I do most of my grocery shopping at your spot so that's why I wanted to interview you you figure something out in the supply chain you crack the code but your eggs and I only eat eggs for nutritional value. I really don't like the taste, so I don't I don't like cook omelets or anything. I just eat the egg yolks in smoothies mm-hmm. and even sometimes in like a bulletproof coffee. Mm-hmm. And your guys' egg yolks are like dark orange. They're almost like a marigold color. And most eggs, I mean, if you, I haven't even had a conventional egg. And they're egg. super firm. Yeah, they are. That's the other crazy thing. If you crack our eggs and you look at the profile of the yolk compared to a conventional one that are so firm, 
you know, flat. So. Yeah, and, and how I can tell, too, is the little egg sac holding the yolk together. Um, I don't like the whites for a number of reasons, mostly health-related. So I, I run it under the sink, the yolk. I just put it in my hand, and I put it in my palm, and I run it under the sink, and the white washes off very easily. And your eggs never break. The yolk just stays in that little ball, and I just throw you know four or five of them in a green smoothie or something. And <laughs> I, they just feel more energetic and nutritious. So that's part one. Part two is... I've been told that we have an undue amount of paranoia in terms of refrigerating eggs. Mm -hmm. That is, you actually don't need to do that. Yeah. Like if you went and harvested eggs from your own chickens, they could sit on the counter for like a month and mm -hmm. be fine. Is exactly. that, what's the deal with the whole egg thing? Okay. So on the first thing, remember that an egg is a dynamic organism. It's an egg and then the white is there to feed the egg. So the egg wants to stay alive, right? The yolk is waiting to be fertilized. So the yolk is interacting with the white over time. I mean, they and there, I, I don't know the, the technicalities of how they stop that in some commercial production, but when you see that soften, that like that mushiness of the yolk, it's because it's consuming more and more of the white, and the white gets more slippery and less. And that not just our egg, but in any high quality farm egg, you'll see two layers of white, you know, the first white's this really thick gel of a white, and then there's like a slippery white that's just more like liquid around that. So that thicker white is the most the nutrition for the yolk. And what you'll see in an industrial egg too, is that that proportion of that gets much, much smaller, because of the nutrition of the animals, but also simply because the egg is much, much older. So the yolk's been sustaining itself for longer off of the white. Um, oh, so if you if so if I if I go grab some eggs from my my chicken coop and put them on my counter, is the reason that they're not going bad because the yolk is still feeding on the white while I it sits there, or is that only while it's incubated? I'm on I'm on um, on slippery slope here. Okay, I don't want to okay. get you getting angry letters. I, these are kind of things that I feel like I knew a lot about like ten years ago. And now I don't pay as much attention to, but there I I think it's a dynamic process, is my okay. understanding. My question is: Is there some zapping that happens in the industrial operation that I'm not aware of? That right, that right. That. I know in our operation, it's a dynamic process. That egg wants to get fertilized or wanted to get fertilized, and it's waiting. And so it is consuming. I mean, the, the yolk and the uh, and the white continue to interact. And I'm totally going to derail you from like the original two-part question, but before I forget, isn't when you see a little dot, like a black dot in the um, yolk, does that not mean that the egg's fertile? It's been fertilized, yeah. Oh, okay. And many people fertilized. like fertilized yeah, yeah, eggs. Yeah. The longevity of the egg is just, it's a really well-designed biological organism i mean it's it's right. been designed to resist things now the fertilization of the egg of course happens before the egg is produced um so it, there's i don't think that the eggs are sitting around waiting for the fertilization to happen obviously right. but i think there are certain processes that are active in the egg regardless of fertilization just by virtue of how the thing evolved but the way that they were designed is remember that if an egg is going to be fertilized and sat on it doesn't hatch immediately so those eggs that can last for a month or two in your in your kitchen on the it's because an egg that's being uh when a chicken sits on the egg oh incubated incubated but there's an there's even brooded when a broody hen oh, okay, or when okay. it's brooded anyways when it's been hatched they, oh is that where the term brooding comes from mm -hmm. he's just sitting there brooding a broody hen <laughs> is a hen that's like fussing around oh, okay, waiting to have cool. her eggs the longevity of the egg it's because it's got that great shell that's semi-permeable um, and that's another question of the eggs aging is that they do lose a little transpiration, a little bit of moisture through that shell over time, which also changes the quality of what's inside. But it evolved to survive 
while the chick inside was maturing. And how long does that take? Two weeks about? I don't know offhand. Um, but that, so it was designed to resist all of that. So of course, the non-fertilized egg has the same functionality. You know, it still works, that, that system right. of the nice hard shell. Otherwise, the chicks couldn't hatch because they have to spend a lot of time there, you know, growing and getting ready to pop out. The yellows, just to let you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a false indicator. We do have very yellow eggs because our chickens, they are eating a diverse diet. Chickens are one of the species that digest carotene. So if you see a very, very bright orange egg yolk, it can be an indicator that they're getting carotene from lots of natural sources, which is a good indicator that they're eating a diverse diet. So they're eating flowers and plants and grubs and other things, right? You can also just simply add carotene to their feed and get a deep yellow yolk. So that's one thing to be, and you can also have uh, chickens that are raised in an environment that just for whatever reason, that pasture doesn't have a lot of carotene seasonality or something else, you know, like, or I don't know, it's in Norway. I don't know what the situation was. We have zero carotene, but you can have a very healthy diet as a chicken without carotene. Maybe they're on an apple farm and they're eating delicious apples and worms and there's no carotene in that. So they can have a very pale yolk and be a very healthy egg. So I I love that people love the orangeness and it is, a you know, I'd say 80% of the time it's a reliable indicator. But it isn't always a totally reliable indicator. And I do see some eggs now that I know are not awesome production that have glorious yellow, yellow yolks. And that's simply because they're adding carotene. Um, really, I love exposing little industry scams like that. And I want to do a lot more of that with you. Um, but that also makes me feel good because sometimes I'll buy what I think is really like a pastured free range egg. And I mean, I read the cartons like a maniac and you know, I know what I'm looking for, I think. And then I'll crack it open and it's like pale yellow. I'm like, oh, I got duped. They're, they're, <laughs> there's no nutrition in it. So that's cool. Yeah. I, that's, right. Okay. Way. Well, yeah. I love learning. And stuff. the only nutrition that that indicates to you is that the yolk has carotene in it. So okay, there's certain cool. animals that take carotene. They put it into their outputs like cows put carotene into their milk. So if you have a pastured green grass fed cow, their milk is going to be slightly yellow or dependent somewhat on breed. Sheep, though, you can have the greenest grass in the world and they just do not put the carotene into their milk. Genetically, no sheep do that. So sheep milk is always going to be chalk white, no matter if it's on the greenest pastures on earth, right? So it just somewhat depends on species. So some people think, oh, this sheep cheese is so white. You know, it's a little bit weird. Is it healthy or is it natural? No, it's just the way sheep are built. They just don't take the carotene from their diet and put it into their milk for whatever evolutionary reason. Interesting, interesting. So another thing on the eggs, maybe we can like crack the code on some of the labeling. Because I feel like, you know, now that the public is becoming more aware of the way you know animals are raised and plants are raised and people know about organic food and they want to have some sort of sense of connection to the farm and that supply chain but there's so much misinformation and there's you know the people marketing sometimes inferior products are also very keen on the buzzwords people are looking for like i see on eggs for example this and it always cracks me up but it says fed a vegetarian diet mm-hmm. on eggs and i'm like but birds aren't vegetarians like i don't think i actually want um a chicken that's fed a vegetarian diet that makes no sense and because i'm always just going back to nature like if no no industrialization ever happened like what would it look like and you know what's the closest i can get to that so that is always weird to me and to me that also means in some cases if it's a vegetarian diet i'm imagining just tons of gmo corn and soy and all kinds of stuff that i don't want to have a concentrated like little globule of in my food like if you eat a conventional egg are you not getting just sort of a concentration of a bunch of gmo quote-unquote vegetarian feed that those chickens have been given like in a worst case scenario like a just a factory farm kind of deal i mean that's got to be my suspicion i it's interesting 
you know, drawing the line between diet and caliber of the meat is a tricky game. And I've tried to do it. I've engaged a, you know, a couple different third party research labs to analyze stuff for me to figure out what's different. Because everything from a taste and a just a visual perspective, our product is really, really different. And I'm interested to figure out what exactly is different in it. And what I've seen so far is that the major differences that I can tie to diet have to do with the quantity, the omega-3s and omega-6 uh, fats in the meat. That's the primary thing for pork and for lamb and for beef. I mean, beef is the most notable difference. I haven't analyzed our eggs yet. Um, we've also seen hi- slightly higher protein concentration in our products. And I'm just saying just broadly, the egg, the, the industrial egg versus our egg, what's the actual nuts and bolts difference? So, I mean, I, there's, and I've also seen um, pretty significant differences in probiotic cultures, you know, in actual the probiotics in, in, that are naturally good probiotics in the meat. Because one thing we hear a lot about our products is that you don't get like a meat hangover, or you don't feel a gut bomb after you eat our products. And I've thought, well, we naturally age a lot of them and they have good enzymes on them and they start out with good, clean flora. So that's probably part of the picture too. So there's some things that I'm able to draw a line for. And I don't know if the science is there yet to figure out what the other differences are. Because there's a, if you've read in the, um, the book Dorito Effect by Mark Schatzner, the whole concept of secondary flavor characteristics and satiety, it's a really neat group of studies done with uh, goats and sheep, showing that goats and sheep, if they're just fed corn and soy and stuff, they'll just stuff themselves full and eat a tote number of calories. If they're put into a diverse environment, they'll eat much, much fewer calories and they'll eat more selectively. So they'll eat a bunch of different things by their own choice and seem to sort of follow a similar pattern and often are even documented healing themselves. So eating, you know, there's been documented examples of a whole herd that gets a certain type of infection and they will seek out a very specific bitter herb that is a natural antibacterial that will cure that infection, right? And so his theory is that there's a lot of components in natural foods that are satiety indicators and that when we're eating for health, we're actually saying that we're, we're understanding fullness very differently than if we're eating just to hit a nutritional, you know, sort of a, eating bland, non-nutritional foods. So these are all things I'm just sort of pulling together saying, hey, I don't know the exact, you know, difference yeah. between our eggs. I know there's a real difference and I'm frustrated that I can't always articulate that for customers um, because... Obviously, our product cooks really differently. It it takes a lot, you know, our, our chickens cook twice the speed, but our steaks cook much slower. It's a very different product. But we also, you know, have noticed these certain differences that we can document. Omega-3 and omega-6s, protein ratios, probiotics, a few things, but doesn't tell the whole story. You know, so I don't know if it's the concentrated, you know, essence of those GMO, you know, corn elements. My My thinking is, you know, look at the integrity of the meat. And I think part of it's that the animals are growing slower. And you certainly see it more in the meat than you do in the eggs. But today I did a tasting for my team of a foster farm chicken, a Mary's organic chicken, and a Belcampo chicken. And, you know, the Mary's organic is like a slightly, you know, it's a kind of mediocre version of a Belcampo. It's pretty good. Um, it's not great. The Belcampo one's tons of flavor. It tastes exactly like you want a chicken to taste. And the foster farmers one is like a different species. It's a it's a very chemical um, f- flavor and it's mushy and the, the actual you know caliber I always have my staff squeeze the animals too you know like squeeze the carcass <laughs> feel how mushy it is um, the same thing with the bacons you know do you take industrial bacon you actually squeeze it and you think well this is like the way my 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 body feels like if I don't do anything for a year you know like that's actually a very you can really draw a line there so there's just I just you know the caliber of the product is so very very different but I don't know the science and I don't think we know the science yet of why and that's a, a big challenge I think for our whole movement now is to figure out 
okay, why? What is this? And, and then what are the long-term health differences? You know, there's there's got to be a lot of different layers to it. Um, and I think part of it is that you eat less of it and you hit that satiety, fullness indicator for yourself sooner, you know, because you're feeding a different type of nutrition. You're not just eating for calories, you're eating for micronutrients and phenols and very, very subtle flavor indicators that say to you, oh, this is what your body needs right now, right? Um, so that's, an, and I, I think that many people who discover more holistic nutrition and health through food describe starting to understand cravings again and understanding that like, you know, it starts raining like it is today and we want broth or you have a cold, like, all of a sudden you, you know, you're craving liver and you find out that you're on the cusp of anemia. And I think it's interesting that in America, we talk about craving as this weird thing that happens when you're pregnant. That's like, you know, or it's emotional eating. But we talk about, you know, the idea that you're in, in pregnancy cravings are described as something that's like weird and just women being bananas and being crazy. But, you know, you actually look at what pregnancy cravings are. They're craving lacto-fermented vegetables, which when you're pregnant, your digestion really slows down. Um, all the hormones slow down your whole digestive tract. So it makes a lot of sense that you crave pickles because they actually help right, things go. Right, you know, right. it's like, so if you actually take it apart, it's actually totally logical. But I think to me, it's like, oh, wow, in America, we only think of craving as this crazy thing that happens to crazy women in this massive body change thing, but it's not normal to ever sort of want a certain food that feeds a certain nutrition, right? So that's a question for me is like it, part of the the health question for for me and trying to explain why Belcampo is important and why providing this kind of food is important is saying, well, we help people feed themselves for health if they know what they're feeding themselves for, if they're able to touch that hunger, you know, touch that like deep healing type of food and figure out what that is, we have a product that can meet that. I don't have the science yet on why, but I know from our customer base and from the stories I hear that we're able to help people nourish themselves really deeply. You just clued me into something too, just thinking about my own food cravings and, you know, dietary history is that when you're eating cleaner food for a period of time, you stop craving the food that hurts your body for the most part. And then what I notice is, I don't want to call it cheating, but I make an adult-educated decision. Like I was telling you last night, I went to the movies and I just crushed a whole um, box of milk duds. <laughs> you know, just like And the peanut butter cookie. Yeah, pe- don't, don't tell that on the air. My <laughs> listeners are going to drop the show. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I just was in line. I thought, you know what? I'm kind of like having a sugar craving. And what I notice is anytime that I sort of open that door again, then it's like, it almost throws off the innate senses that my body has of what's good for it. And it starts calling in all this other stuff that's also bad. Whereas if I really kind of stick to my guns and if I'm craving something sweet, I have something that's got coconut sugar or is more like on the paleo spectrum of a dessert and is you know clean and healthy and all that then um, it's much easier to stay on the path. It's like there's this Tim Ferriss kind of thing he wrote in a book years ago called The Cheat Day. On Sundays, you just like eat Twinkies and pizza, you know, and I tried that. And then I found myself on Monday, like I'm doing it again. And Tuesday, I'm doing it again because it's like that inner knowing that the body has, the body kind of has its own innate intelligence, right? And it knows what it wants and it knows what it needs. But when you let your mind and kind of that craving ego self start wanting milk duds, then all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, just get the cookie too. And I'm like, wait, what am I doing? I don't eat. I mean, I remember walking out of the theater last night, having that giant cookie going, what are you doing? It's not, it's not like a guilt trip or, you know, I have to be careful not to be, you know, 
phobic and like neurotic about it. It's like, whatever, I enjoyed the damn cookie and I feel fine. It's great. It's amazing. The milk duds were wonderful. The, all the GMO corn syrup was delicious. But I don't make a habit of that because then it's like I turn off that sensing and yeah. now I don't know one egg's better than the other or why I'm craving organ meats and, you know, listening to my body and what my hormones need. Because it's really weird as I've gotten more in tune over the last few years, I really do notice it's not even a craving so much because a craving is almost like, I want Doritos or I want, you know, Snickers. It's like a craving is like for gas station, just trash food. But yeah. it's like um, almost like a yearning where your body's like ding, ding, like tapping you on the shoulder, like go that way, eat that. And you're right. It's cool to become more in tune, whether you're pregnant or not or whatever's going on. It's funny, though. It is seen as something like a little bit of an aberration in our society now. Is, but I yeah. think, you know, you look back and you were talking about looking to evolution as a, or historic ways. And food was the way we had to heal ourselves. We couldn't give ourselves shots. You know, we didn't take pills. The way you, you put health into your body and the way you fix problems was through food. And the whole, um, you know, there's interesting things, the, the bone broth craze now. You know, in traditional, I lived in northern Italy for a number of years, and at the end of any large meal that you had there, you drank a bowl of hot broth. You actually took your last glass of wine and you threw it into a bowl of hot broth and drank that down. No way. Yeah, it's just a traditional thing to wow. help soothe your stomach. And the other thing you do like that is bitter herbs in a digestive, I mean, in alcohol, but it's not like you're drinking it to, to get a buzz. It's like a medicine. You take a shot of this like really, really intense bitter herb liquor and at the end of a heavy meal or if you're having digestive problems, you know, just the way we heal ourselves with through food and through extractions of food. So I think that the kind of listening, I think people who get tuned into health start to listen to those signs and start to be thrilled when they're able to be on a much more even keel and not be going from one cold to another problem to another problem, you know, swinging pendulum from one issue to another because they're able to anticipate and feed their deep nutrition, you know, they're, they're sort of like deep needs. Um, and it's more, you look at food just as, as calories and it's, and it's really health, you know. That's an interesting question though. And I think that Part of the problem is that our food has been bred to have none of those health characteristics. So, of course, we can't listen to our bodies. Oh, my if God, we yeah. And our, and our taste buds, too. It's like you were mentioning bitter herbs. I mean, go try to sell someone on the idea of eating a dandelion green salad. <laughs> you know, it's like it's too bitter. Yeah. Arugula, we're like, okay. But another, you know, I always talk about my friend Daniel because I learned so much from him. But something he's talked about is how all of the food, vegetables and fruits have all been hybridized. And really not only have the has the flavor been bred out of them, but in so doing, also the nutrition. Uh -huh. Like the original, you know, like spinach, arugula, broccoli, all these are basically the same plant, essentially, in different forms, right? Just DNA level, they're basically all the same. There's like really, if you go to Whole Foods, there's about 10 different plants in the vegetable section, but there's maybe 200 varieties of those plants. Basically, I'm giving like a very mm -hmm. Flintstonian viewpoint of that. Mm -hmm. But that back in the day, bitter herbs and plants they were eating would have been packed with so much more nutrition. And I think also because the food is lacking nutrition, we also lose a sense of what our body wants and needs. And it kind of goes back to what we're saying as you start to eat in this way and you're, you know, getting your food from the farmer's market or a place like Belcampo, it's like your body starts to listen again. Like, oh, yeah, I do want something bitter now or I do want a broth. It's like you can start to become tuned into that again, which is so cool that you can you can kind of undo the damage of becoming desensitized from going up, growing up on cornflakes. It's and right there. Wonder Bread. You, you know, know, we just have to tap into it. And I think it's also amazing that, you know, you see so many people who grew up on fast food and then discover a better, healthier way and how much better they feel. And you don't really hear the narrative of like, oh, I grew up eating really healthy and then I discovered fast food. 
<laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah. it's it's kind of a one way street, which I consider reassuring. That's you know? cool. Yeah, like it's it's like it's it, it is a better way. I mean, I just you don't hear that other story. Yeah, you don't hear that story, and I think that that's to me says like, well, this is actually for you know, it, it, it's just much healthier. Another neat kind of aspect that I've discovered, and this is because I I mean, my hobby is cooking. I just love to cook, and it's my way of meditating and relaxing. And I grew up, you know, thinking about recipes and cooking as way you know it's a lot of sauces and complexity and finger food and that, that my in the growing up in the 90s was like that was sort of fancy food and what i've discovered with producing really high quality meat and of course living in italy and that was you know part of my education around this but just now that i'm getting access to more and more just amazing quality product every day is how great simple food can taste the reason that we don't like chicken soup is that it tastes terrible when it's made from a foster farm chicken. You know, just like these basic simple recipes, just boiling a chicken, an amazing simple recipe. Um, I know from our lunch that you don't like chicken, but this is a chicken recipe. Well, you know what? Actually, the other day I did get, I, I just, for some reason, I'm not compelled to eat chicken. But the other day at Erewhon, which I'm, I'm sure you've been there, yeah. right? Yeah, being in. So I had some chicken soup from there because it was a cold day. And I was like, it had a really chickeny flavor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is actually good. Maybe I'll, you know open back up to that so yeah you know you take one traditional chinese recipe that people don't make anymore but if you use a really good chicken it's incredible you just take a chicken put it in a pot cover it with cold water bring the pot to the boil and then turn it right off and just let the chicken cook in that residual heat and let it come back down to room temperature and then you can reduce that broth and then make it like a lovely salad out of it. i mean it's just the most simple essential thing and it, when you use good ingredients you just taste it different and I'm, i know that i'm speaking to the converted with your audience but it is interesting to me to kind of unwind all this bland food, what it's done. I mean, we put satay sauce on everything. We put sriracha on everything. Why do we do that? You know, why we put so many sugar ketchup everywhere? Uh, So much salt and sugar in every single sauce. Because if you eat that meat, it's like, well, yeah, I just got to put some on to make it taste like something, to make it worth my time. Yeah. And we forget that when you breed in or raise for that flavor, you realize why people didn't always have chili sauce on their table in history <laughs> you know what i mean it's <laughs> right, like right. they did in countries where you had issues where you needed to kill bacteria on the surface of food right. that's where you used it and that was about it you know like and it's i'm not i put sriracha in my bone broth all the time i love it you know of course it's great i'm not judging that but i'm just saying it's we these things that have become the standard that we have to have three sauce bottles in every single restaurant table in america because otherwise it's not going to taste right that's a function of of breeding bland food. I want to go back to something that we we took a detour from, and that's a little bit of the supply chain piece. And that the way I look at eating an animal product is that I'm not just eating that animal, I'm eating whatever that animal ate and whatever that thing ate, right? So going, you know, a grass-fed cow, well, what soil did the grass grow? And, and was it native soil? I mean, was it native grass seeds that just grew there? Or is it alfalfa that's been planted? And where did that come from? And is that a hybridized plant? You know what I mean? So it's like not being a hunter and being able to go out and get an elk that feeds me for a year or whatever. I'm buying food from restaurants and farmers markets and grocery stores. And I'm always thinking about, well, what water did the animal drink? What food did it drink? Kind of like the GMO thing with the chickens and things like that. So in general, in the industry, do you think that farmers and and ranchers and stores that sell animal products are starting to find that they can make it more profitable as a business to feed the animals 
their native diet, whether that be, you know, grass-fed cows, for example, or chickens that are truly free-range, does it make sense to the bottom line? Is there going to be um, a convergence where the factory farm no longer makes sense? Or do you think that the world's just too populated with people that not everyone can farm like that and create really highly nutritious food where the animal's eating what it's meant to be eaten, you know, according to the laws of nature? That's too easy a question. Come on, ask me another question. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the entire agricultural system. Does it make sense? The question. Well, I know it doesn't make sense, <laughs> no, but no, it's I like, know. I just, is, is there is there is there a way out of it, even for people that are just because you you know you like you said you want to have a great business and make money and employ lots of people and mm-hmm. feed lots of people, um, but you also aren't interested in the integrity of the process. So it's really hard, and the the first step is we throw away fifty one percent of the meat that's produced in America is thrown away. We consume per person a ridiculous amount of meat. So when the question is, is there enough space or is it possible to feed America with the type of meat that my company produces? The math needs to start with what does consume meat mean? How we consume it now? Throwing more than half of it away? Eating, you know, only steaks? (laughs) Only things we can grill? Eating only things we can cook in two minutes? You know, that's the reality. No, there's no way we can um, because that's the non-sustainability of the farming system. A lot of it has to do with the environment, but the non-sustainability, I put the weight on, on our c- current consumption patterns, which means that we've grown so accustomed to cheap meat that we have developed a pattern of eating it that is really analogous to consumption of lots of um, non-renewable resources like petroleum, right? We just have developed a pattern that is doesn't map onto how this resource exists in the world. So I don't have the math on me, and I could maybe spend a couple of weeks trying to figure it out. I probably should at some point, but because I get I get asked the question of like, well, is this just a product for the elite? And it's no, it's a product for the people who are willing to make some shifts to how they eat if they'd like to. You know, we our ground beef sells for somewhere between four ninety nine and six ninety nine a pound currently. Okay, it's not a buck ninety nine, but be, it's because I haven't gone to like a store like Ralph's and bought just corn fed <laughs> GMO full. What is like nor- the shittiest meat you could find at the grocery store cost per pound? It's just by be, contrast. for a ground meat, it might be buck ninety nine. Oh wow. To four ninety nine. Okay. So okay. the normal range, we're at the high end of a normal range. Okay. And ours is an organic certified grass fed and finished product. Right. So if you're willing to make bolognese, you can live on a budget off of our meat. The issue is that people I mean, I understand why people want a wider range of cuts and we can't offer that affordably. So there's, I mean, so the, the first level is how do we eat meat? The wastage issue and... Why is there so much wastage? It's crazy. Just because it, we know we can just go get more because we're mean, in a disposable-minded culture? It's the culture? whole system. You know, you think about it, you have a buffet in this country and there's always food for twice as many people and there's 10 times as many dishes. You know, look at the restaurant wastage. Look at the, the just the amount of food that we put out for any type of catering or conventional, it would be like um, school dining, you know, those kind of things. Like the, it, the way that it's, and the number of options that are expected to be there. I mean, that's just, that's the issue right there. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because most of the time when I eat out, they bring, it's, it's way too big. <laughs> the portion's way too much. Yeah. Unless it's like really expensive French restaurant or something, then I'm kind of like, really, guys? Like $45 (laughs) for this entree? I'm not even close to full. But I'm kind of a snacker. I don't eat that much at once. And I'm always like, God, this is such a waste. Like, are the portions, they're so huge. So that's kind of part of it, too. I guess we're just sort of used to that in our culture. 
And it's also, I mean, the other major issue for us is the subsidy system makes conventional farming a lot cheaper than it should be. You know, the way that I farm costs two to three times what conventional farming costs. You can command a premium of 20 to 40% with organic certified. So that's the problem for me is that we eat it, you know, and that's why in distributor margins and in retailer margins are what I'm cutting out. Okay. So in my case, I'm spending two to three times what a Ralph's producer would spend to grow every pound of meat. And I can charge 20 to 40% more for it than they do in a Ralph's. So where do I recoup that difference? I mean, it's a pretty big spread, right? And where I recoup it is distributors take usually 20% and a retailer usually takes somewhere between 40 and 60%. So that's some of it. But if you do the math on that, I'm still making a smaller margin. So that's the sort of sad truth, I think, with the way the subsidy system has warped pricing and margins for people who are doing things the right way. I think it's actually a, you know, a huge disservice to the American people, I mean, to our health. Between those two issues of like, okay, could this be the way that we feed America? Let's talk about food waste and utilization, and let's talk about subsidies. And once we were, if we were able to really clear those out, then we'd have a, a better black and white kind of context to evaluate that. That said, you know, you, you get an enormous amount of efficiencies with our type of farming over time. We're able to, I mean, in terms of the, the type of efficiencies that we get um, with multiple years of raising uh, perennial pastures as they get richer and richer, we're increasing capacity. We increase capacity through the drought. I mean, during the drought, we actually on some of our pastures increase our capacity. Um, you know, there's certain areas that we really shine. Right now, we're having a crazy year for rain in California. Well, you know what? My pastures have 30 feet to 50 feet deep perennial root systems. You rain like this on a normal farm in Bakersfield and they lose like two feet of topsoil and oh, the ditch right. floods and they're right. bankrupt. It rains like this on our farm, it's awesome. And we'll be putting this money in the bank for three years. I mean, this rain will be impacting my yields three years from now because of those deep root systems. And you're talking soil 50 feet down has roots from our grass. Wow, that's I mean, crazy. So it's like there are certain things where I say, okay, my system is way less productive, way less productive. But we're kind of like an ATV. You know, we can just go anywhere and make it. And the, the industrial system super, super fast, but it's like a Ferrari. And you, the road gets it all rocky and you're really screwed, right? So I think in the shifting climate context that's happening now, just like what we're having now, you know, now yeah. it's El Nino and then they're saying it's La Nina, but it's not La Nina and it's just like, the Spanish word for we don't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> right? That's what actually the weather is. And the NOAA needs to just admit that because yeah. I go to the website. It's called, the planet has this thing called weather. It's always been here <laughs> and it's always going to be here. This moment right here is known as a cliffhanger, y'all. You're going to have to tune in this Friday to catch the rest of this fantastic interview with our guest, Anya. I trust that you are inspired to eat cleaner, to eat healthier, and most of all, to support your local farmer, farmer's markets, and farm-to-table restaurateurs. So tune in this Friday to catch the rest of the interview with Anya. Until then, eat well, sleep well, be well, and most of all, thank you so, so much for listening to The Lifestyle podcast. Okay, now that we've wrapped up another episode and are even more inspired to live a healthy, happy lifestyle, I want to remind you to go to Organifi.com. That's spelled with an I, Organifi.com. Check out the green juice powder. It's fantastic. And what's even more fantastic is that if you enter the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout, you're going to save a whopping 20% off your order. Go to Organifi.com 
Enter the code LIFESTYLUS, save 20%. 